Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future, sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Sir, we're being radar scanned. United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Oh, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Commander, if you set down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. When you reach the Forbidden Planet, you will meet Dr. Morbius, played by Walter Pigeon. The Doctor is sole owner of this fabulous world. Anne Francis is his alluring daughter, Alta, who has never seen a young man till she meets Commander Adams, played by talented Leslie Nielsen. Not in. Didn't bring my bathing suit. What's a bathing suit? Oh, murder. You will meet a charming character in The Robot, able to produce, on order, ten tons of lead or a slinky evening gown. Always at your service. You must be the loveliest, softest thing you've ever made for me. And fit in all the right places, with lots and lots of star sapphires. Star sapphires take a week to crystallize properly. Would diamond or emeralds do? You explore all the wonders of a vanished civilization. You travel deep down into the heart of the forbidden planet to discover the incredible marvels of this lost genius race. These magnificent scenes in striking Eastman color stagger the imagination. 20 miles. Look down, gentlemen, are you afraid? 7,800 levels. Yet the wonders of the planet Altair IV conceal a strange and evil force, unknown, irresistible. 
right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo, and I'm joined by a special in-guest house studio, Mr. ADZ from the Tragedy of Cinema Twilight Zone series. He decided to step up to the plate and help cover for Terrence while Terrence is away. Hello. Eric, thanks for jumping in. Yeah, hello, hello, hello. Glad um, to be on the, the movie side of the coin here. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. A uh, long time since you've been yeah, on the I movie can't side. I the last movie that I did. Was it Karate Kid? Who's Karate Kid? Yeah, mind. probably Karate Kid. Karate Kid, yeah. Um, A to Z, you know, I got We were going to be covering Jurassic Park, but I wanted to save that for Terrence um, in case he started taking notes. Um, so that we will still be doing that, but I want to get a regular episode out because it's been so long and Eric stepped up to the plate. So, Eric, thanks a lot. Yeah. Um, this will be episode number 52. Uh, we will be talking about Forbidden Planet, one of the great sci fi classics. And the reason I wanted Eric in on this one is because there is a lot of correlation between this uh, and the Twilight Zone props being used a lot. You see it come up all the time when we talk about it. So I finally told Eric, just watch it. We'll do an episode on it. That way, everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh, But before we get started, uh, I'd like to go ahead and cover some of the basics, you know, some housekeeping, if you will. Uh, first of all, let me say thanks to, to, to some of the download people, some of the countries. Um, I see you. I just haven't said anything in a long time. So there's a lot of people in the United States. I know the Houston area, the Utah area, um, up by Maine and Vermont and all and all that in West Virginia and Indiana and Chicago. Uh, thank you, guys. And now on our worldwide uh, level, uh, we have listeners in Australia, the Philippines, Canada, France, the United Kingdom, Germany, Belgium, Denmark, Mexico, Netherlands, and the Russian Federation. So I just want to say, yes, we see you. We don't always acknowledge you, but thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Um, Also, if you would like to send us an email about a movie you would like to cover or come on the podcast, please send us an email at thetragedyofcinema at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook uh, and join our group, the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group on Facebook. Uh, We have a lot of fun in there. Even ADZ's posts some stuff in there. So if you like AD stuff, he posts a lot of stuff in there. And also we have our official merchandise at the Redbubble, all one word, dot com. Just search the Tragedy of Cinema and you can find sweatshirts, t-shirts, uh, coffee cups, coffee mugs, water bottles, aprons, leggings, I think. Whatever you want to put us on, I'm pretty sure they can put us on. So, But enough about the housekeeping Eric, let's talk a little bit about the Forbidden Planet. Okay. I know, I know, it was a struggle for you to watch a couple of times. Uh, it it struggled. It dragged in a few spots uh, for me, but um, overall, I, I thought it was well. We'll get to that at the end, I guess. <laughs> I'm always jumping ahead, aren't I? Let's start off with the the title, Forbidden Planet, and its release date was June thirteenth, nineteen fifty eight, and its budget was one point nine million. And its offerings at the box office was $2.75 million. Now, to adjust those for inflation, uh, the budget $1.9 million would translate to $17,197,532. Uh, and in today's numbers, the box office at $2.75 million would translate to $24,891,020 if they were adjusted for inflation. It was directed by Fred M. Wilcox. And um, the writing, he's also included in the writing credits as well. The screenplay by Cyril Hume. Irving Block was, uh, was based on the story by Irving Block. And also Alan Alder. And even, you should recognize this name, even William Shakespeare is an uncredited uh, here uh, in the writing credits. It was uh, rated G, 
with a runtime of one hour and 38 minutes. Uh, the technical specs, the sound mix was mono, Perspecta, sound encoding, and Western Electric Sound System, four track stereo, four channels. Uh, the color info, it was in color, and photographed in Eastman color. The aspect ratio was uh, 2.55 by 1 for all you film buffs out there. The film length was 2,695.35 meters. Hope that's correct. And the negative format was 35 millimeter. The process was CinemaScope. And the printed format was a 35 millimeter. And uh, let me go ahead with the awards yeah, here. You got to do it like Terrence. Off to the... Uh... Oh, sorry. Awards. Sorry. <laughs> it's hard filling in for Terrence, man. Yeah. He's, he's got it all down. The awards... Uh, uh, let's start in 1957, the Academy Awards USA. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Effects and Special Effects for Irving G. Rise, Wesley C. Miller, and A. Arnold Gillespie. And in 2000, coming forward in time, in 2006, it was uh, nominated uh, Best Classic DVD, uh, Ron, excuse me, Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards nominated it for a Rondo statuette. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and uh, for best classic DVD. And then um, 2007, the Academy of Science Fiction and Fantasy and Horror Films in the USA was not nominated, excuse me, for a Saturn Award for the best DVD classic film release. So uh, 2007 DVD. And then finally, the most recent in 2013, it was uh, up on the National Film Preservation Board USA. It won the National Film registry so uh that concludes the awards segment and let me move on to the brief synopsis a starship crew goes to investigate a missing colony on a planet which leads them to encounter and find two survivors a doctor and his daughter and an enemy unlike any they have faced and you know what i this is one of those movies that you that i've always seen like the cover for and i've always seen the robot and I've always thought, man, I'd, I'd like to watch that movie. You know what I mean? But I had never seen it before this. And I'm, I'm glad I, I did. I'm glad I did. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about the cast a little bit. Um, what an excellent cast. I mean, this is, uh, we'll just start at the top with uh, Walter Pidgeon. He played Dr. Morbius. His, his acting is excellent in this movie. Um, he's most famous for Mrs. Miniver uh, from 1942. Um, you had Anne Francis, who played Altera Morbius, which is obviously the daughter of Dr. Morbius. Um, and she played in Bad Day at Black Rock in 1955. Then we have this one. I couldn't believe it when I, I, I didn't even know he was in it. But we have the one and only Leslie Nielsen, who plays Commander Adams. He's fam most famous for probably Airplane in 1980, as well as the Naked Gun trilogy. Um, was it was, Hot Shots, too? Uh, no, that was uh, Lloyd Bridges or whatever. Okay, um, but I just think that wow. Uh, I've always so used to see him in a slapstick comedy yeah. role. I didn't know he did stuff serious, like uh, serious, dramatic roles. Yeah. I mean, he was great in this movie. I remember my parents telling me that uh, when all the the uh, Naked Guns came out, like when I was in high school, and all the slapstick humor and airplane. I'd seen Airplane and stuff. And my, I remember my parents being like, you know, Leslie Nielsen was a real like dramatic actor. Yeah, I was like, yeah. what? He's You're been in several me. things. And I was like, I did not know. Um, but man, he this is his actual film debut. So okay. this is the first time anybody's seen him on the big screen. 
Um, Warren Stevens was Lieutenant Doc Ostro, um, most famous for the Barefoot Contesta in 1954. Uh, Jack Kelly played Lieutenant Farman, uh, was famous for A Fever in the Blood in 1961. Richard Anderson uh, played Chief Quinn. Uh, he was in the Six Million Dollar Man from 1974. Earl Holloman, he was the cook, one of Eric's favorite. Cookie. He was he was in The Sons of Katie Elder in 1965. Have you seen that? No, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, George Wallace, he played Boson. Uh, he was uh, in uh, another sci-fi Radar Men from the Moon in 1952. Robert Dix, he was the crewman Gray, uh, played Bob Dix, was in Five Bloody Graves in 1969. Jimmy Thompson. He was crewman Youngford. He was in Singing in the Rain in 1952. James Drury. He was crewman Strong. He was in The Virginian in 1962. Harry Harvey Jr. played crewman Randall. He was in Mannix in 1967. And there's one in here you're going to know. I know okay. you will. Um, Roger McGee it was crewman Lindstrom. He was in The Escape in 1939. Peter Millen was crewman Mormon. He was in Gettysburg in 1993. Morgan Jones was crewman Nichols. He was in The Blue Angels in 1960. Uh, Richard Grant was in Purple Heart Diary in 1951. He played Crewman Silvers. And uh, making his film debut was Robbie the Robot. <laughs> <laughs> I know him. Uh, he was also in The Invisible Boy in uh, 1957. Uh, here you go. James Best. He was a crewman. Yeah. He's okay. Do Roscoe you know? Pico. Tree. Roscoe Pico Tree from The Dukes of Hazzard of in 1979. Did you notice him in the film, though, before you watched it? Uh, I didn't notice him in the film at all. I, I just remember him from uh, the Andy Griffith show and uh, Duke obviously Duke Sazer. Right. Yeah. Roscoe Pico. Train. What was his dog's name? Flash. Flash. Uh, I'm man of the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, William Boyette, he was a crewman in credit, was in Newsies in 1992. Frankie Dario, um, he played, I, I believe he was the actor inside the robot, uh, and he was in on the spot in 1940. Marvin Miller. He was Robbie the Robot's voice, which is uncredited. He was in Dead Reckoning in 1947. And the narrator, Les Tremaine. I'm trying to think of... He was in uh, The War of the Worlds in 19... Where was the narration at? I'm trying to remember. What, in, in the, the movie? very beginning of the I think movie? it's in the very beginning. Okay. Because oh, yeah. yeah. don't they talk about, like, the this is the voyage, they're going to look for this, blah, blah, okay. blah. How did all the those uh, cast members fit into that flying saucer? <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice how small it looked? It then, was very Then small. when it landed, it was like, whoa, they're coming out of these steps. I was like, man, I don't remember it being that big. But here we go. Um, a lot of people ask, and, and you were one of them, you're like, well, this is a terrible movie. Why does it get such um, rave revu- reviews? You know what I mean? I don't think it's terrible. Well, but I'm just saying, here's here's ten reasons I found why, at the time... Do tell. I'm about to. Hold your horses. <laughs> um, for one, um, the acting... Um, the cast is excellent. Um, it's the first time you've seen Leslie Nielsen at all. But it usually at this time, they was only showing B movies like this would be considered B casting, you know, like a, a B horror movie. Okay. Um, but this is the uh, there's a little comedy in this film. You know, I mean, it's it's pretty. Yeah, there are touches of comedy and 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 cookie. And the actual the doctor's performance, I think, is probably one of the best. Uh, number two is the audio. This is the you know some of the yeah, the audio the electronic sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no music in the movie, yeah, if you will. It's all right. electronic uh, stuff, which we'll talk about which I didn't a little like. bit later. I didn't uh, like number it. three, the special effects. Um, yes, you can look at it now and say, I think a remake of this would be really good with the sure. special effects they could do. But I really like the special effects. I was 
I was captivated by I it. I respect it for what it is. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty I mean, awesome for its time and place. It was beyond its thing. Um, the matte paintings, visual effects, and detailed full-size sets were just a few of the techniques used to bring this story to life on the grand scale. Um, number four was the uh, technical jargon. Um, it didn't insult your intelligence by, you know, they did, uh, they didn't dumbing dumb it, it down. down. Yeah. yeah, they didn't dumb it down to anybody. Um, so you actually believe the lingo that they were talking about. Uh, number five was the scope and scale. Um, it looked realistic to the audience, you know, especially when they're walking through the cavern system of all the intricate, yeah. what was that, computer or whatever it was, a big, huge thing. It reminded me, like, the, the nuclear walkways and all that stuff kind of reminded me of, like, something like Star Wars. Right, right, like when they're in the Death Star and yeah. they're looking. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just the, the vision that they had. And, and when you see them walking down there, I mean, just seeing it, it looked massive. It, yeah. You believed it was really that big. Mm-hmm. Um well, we are number six. The approach, um, it, you know, when you first see it, it, might be nothing more than a human crew um, touching down on any of the planet looking for life. Um, but it's actually more than that. Uh, it took a different approach from the '50s Brethren and the fact that it wanted to be taken seriously. Um, I believe it was Anne Francis said that you know from the day one that they started filming, they wanted everybody to take it seriously, mm-hmm. and that's how it that's how it turned out. Mm-hmm. Uh, seven was the tension. Um, there's a lot of tension in this in, the, in this movie. Number yeah. one, um, you have the father daughter aspect of it. You have I don't know how else to put it, but you have uh, male on female um, tension. Yeah. Um, you have uh, male on male like I don't know tension from they're all trying to be Alpha with males. the daughter. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, um, they're all trying to get with the daughter of the, the Morbius, uh, but. Man, the tension you can tell, especially between the captain and his crew at points, is really a lot of tension there. Yeah. You know, um, well, we are number eight or seven, seven or eight. Uh, the monster, that monster that attacks them, um, you know, that was something that had never been seen. And I'm not going to give away what it is yet. But we'll talk about that. I got some notes on that. Uh, number nine was the escape. Um, I thought when they were, uh, remember when it, it's dumb. I guess the monster's coming through the wall, you know, and you see that door and it starts melting, you mm-hmm. know, you know, melting. That mm-hmm. kind of reminded me of uh, the prequels of Star Wars where they put the lightsabers in there and are melting the door and all that. So mm-hmm. um, we'll talk about that here in a little bit too. And then the social commentary uh, was a number uh, 10 reason. Um, this is one of the few films to take the vastness of deep space exploration and alien civilization and directly invert the story back into the human mind. Um and I'll talk about what it actually is, and we'll, we'll you know where I'm going with that. If you if you've seen the movie, if you've yeah. seen the movie, you will know what I'm talking yeah. about. So we'll go ahead and talk a little bit about this movie and some of the stuff we found. Um, like we said, this is the first mainstream film to have the music performed entirely by electric instruments, um, which is really weird because they never released a soundtrack for this until like I think it was 1974, 76. Good. They came out. Which is good. <laughs> they, they got annoying. <laughs> Uh, trying to listen to dialogue under all those electronic beep, 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 beeping noises is like all right i want to know what's going on with the plot here yeah this film marks one of the first times a science fiction project has received such a large budget the genre had really been taken seriously by studio executives and sci-fi films generally receive the most meager of budgets obviously if you've ever watched any sci-fi movies you know right um the success of this film convinced many in the film industry that well-funded science fiction projects could be successful mm-hmm. film historian ben mackenwitz has claimed that this film success made future budget science fiction films possible 
In addition to animating the monster that invades the camp, Walt Disney Studios artist Joshua Medor provided approximately 29 other animation effects depicting laser beams and other forms of visual energy. This was filmed on the same stage as The Wizard of Oz okay. in 1939, which was only 17 years earlier. <laughs> I mean, you see, wow. Yeah. So you, they came a long way, you know what I mean? And the set of Altera's Garden is a reuse of the Munchkin Village set. Oh, really? Yeah. So they, they obviously use that too. So let's go ahead, before I dive deeper into this notes, because it's going to start talking about specifics <laughs> specifics of the movie. Right. Basically, you have Leslie Nelson who's the captain of this UFO, for lack of better terms. Yeah. I guess this, humans have found a way to time, not time travel, but deep speed of light, travel, deep space yeah. travel, right. So they're going out to find this colony of survivors that landed on Altera, which was the name of this planet, Altera 4, I think. And um, they're trying to see if they find any of the survivors and bring them back to Earth. Um, so they land. You don't see anything. You see this. <laughs> you see this cloud dust in the background, and rolling up is this robot on like this. I don't know what you call it. A, I would say like a, if you've ever been to like Disneyland or a tram. Yeah, I, I would say uh, it seats two people. And, mm-hmm. and this is Robbie the robot. The first time you see him, um, my favorite character. Oh, he's awesome. And he's like, don't forget to buckle up. <laughs> Make sure they put their seatbelts on, yeah. which I like. So um, basically the commander or the captain and two people, I think, go with him to Dr. Mor- see Dr. Morbius. And this is where it starts getting tricky because they're like, are you the only one? He's like, I'm the only survivor. He, they, he doesn't even tell them that they have his daughter. Well, that doesn't he has Morbius a warn them as they're making their descent too? like, don't. Don't come to this planet. I don't need your help. And they were commissioned, right? Right. To to go in and like investigate the planet for whatever reason. And Morbius basically tries to stop them, at, right, uh, from coming to the planet at all. And and then he's like, I can't be held responsible for what happens exactly. to you and your crew. Yeah, that's an important line. Um, which ultimately he is responsible, mm-hmm. which we'll get to. Um, so basically, um. Altera walks in, which is the doctor's daughter, and they're like, "Well, we thought you were here by yourself." And you can tell right away the one guy is infatuated with. He's like, "Oh man, you know, because they've been in space. What you said, three hundred eighty days or something, something yeah, crazy." Yeah, the, the the line is like three hundred ninety days in uh, hyperspace, and they haven't seen a woman. And yeah, I don't know what that trans. I mean, that would translate to a little over a year here, right? In on Earth, but but if it's hyperspace, is yeah, it- I don't know. <laughs> how long that is that could be a really long time they're young guys their average age is like 24 yeah and so yeah but uh so the one guy's like whoa so um this part got a little tricky so he decided that uh the captain just decided that they're gonna stay is that what he that they are gonna go back with them that they were commissioned to take them back to earth with them i think that's kind of the 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 leaning well they come to find out that all of the didn't most of the people that were with Morbius in the original colony that was sort of transplanted there originally, they had all died. Right, which which I'll reference that at the end. I, yeah. I have a theory about that. And and so... Is that including his wife? I don't wife? know if that comes up that they, they... If they're sort of strong-arming them to go back to Earth... That's I know what that it, that's Morbius what it, has no interest in returning to Earth at all. Well, he's like, he's like, this is where he brings in. He's like, I, I'm sure you've seen Robbie, my robot, and this is where he starts showing some of Robbie's powers. You know, like yeah. um, that's at the initial lunch that they right. have at his. And residence. he's like, he's like, look, he's like blinds or whatever, and then just like totally encases them, like nothing could get in there or whatever. And he's basically saying, look, he's like, I don't want your help. He's like, I'm perfectly safe here, but you guys need to get out of here before something. I can't be responsible for what happens to yeah. you. Yeah. So. Um, 
he goes back and they set up camp or whatever at the at their back of their base you know they put fences up and all that um so but the captain leslie nelson and them are still going to meet with morbius uh for a couple more times or whatever and uh they go back and altera's not there is that before or after she met the other guy was she was she looking at him at like the um when the one guy kisses her is that when they put the we're putting the fences up and he breaks away and goes out to collect wood or whatever or supplies i'm not sure where that that fall i don't think that falls in the initial meeting in the no 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 that's after meeting, they go back yeah they go back to the ship after he's demonstrated uh the fact that uh well we don't want to leave out the scene with the the tiger and the animals right. those are her friends and he he basically says we're we're fine here we're set up here morbius says we're, me and my daughter we don't have need of anything we're fine well they here. pull out their phasers remember because they were going to yeah. shoot the tiger and she's and, like no and, no they're my friends yeah. <laughs> or whatever and uh, did you notice how he communicates though it's like a a, a microphone on his belt he's like yeah like a bat- <laughs> you know that was interesting too that was like that probably never had been done before in film or tv at that point that type of communication is star trek-esque you right. know I use that a lot. And then also the beam in the very beginning of the movie, they beam them. I don't think they beamed to the planet, though. They just kind of went through these. They stood on these uh, what looked like Star Trek beaming transporters. But Well, it froze them in time because oh, they were. Oh, that what it did? Yeah. If you watch it, it basically froze them in time because they were doing their descent or whatever. So oh, it keeps them the pressurized cabin and all that. I didn't catch that. Yeah. I thought that I. I That's why they didn't transporting where they all stood on yeah. the pods and it kind of encased yeah, the them. Things. Right. Okay. Uh, but I'm going back, but and you're going forward, Jimbo. But um, no, you're fine. Go ahead, take it over. No, no. I, uh, <laughs> I like, thought that was cool too about the little oh yeah, the but, communicator and, and all right. that stuff. And um, well, there's also the thing where um, after luncheon, where the 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 member where Robbie takes the gun or whatever, and he says aim it at whoever, and he can't pull the trigger because. He overloads. Yeah. And I thought the the special effects there was really cool with the lightning he's, and all that going on. He's you know like I mean? programmed to override anything unethical. Like he would completely like shut down, I guess. If say like uh, Dr. Morbius told him to go and murder someone, even though he has to sort of, he's at the will of Dr. Morbius and what he's programmed to do. If it overrides any kind of ethic, then he he like goes into this stall mode where he can short circuit himself. I guess. Now, thought that was kind of interesting. Now, after their initial meeting, while they're gone, is that when any of the crew member dies, or is that when but they get back? Yeah, I don't remember which one of the crew member. Uh, wait, no, that comes. I think that comes a little bit later. Um, but there are crew members. There's that, like three crew members that die and. That's when um, Leslie Nelson's like, um, the commander's like, we're not leaving. You know, this thing killed three of our men or whatever. And they put a fence up around their ship, which I thought was really cool. And mm-hmm. uh, Altera comes over there and visits them with Robbie. She's on. The, does yeah. Morbius come with them? I know no, she comes. He's at home. He's at home, and actually, he didn't want her to go near the ship. And she makes a comment like, "Well, I think this is okay because she's in that little." Uh, tram thing. <laughs> yeah. and she's sitting far enough away, and she's watching the the well, back for a lack of a better term, the astronauts do their work on the ship and setting up the uh, the fencing and all that stuff. But yeah, I think this is where you were coming to originally. Then the three guys go back after. Oh wait, this is the initial meeting. Sorry, I'm trying to work my way through the movie as we're. Uh, 
talking about. That's all right. I mean, it's been it's been what two two weeks since I've seen this uh, since we were going to do this. So I'm still trying to jog from my memory, but. Yeah, um, I just watched it last night, and it's not even fresh. <laughs> I probably fell beard. asleep again, and then <laughs> uh, that's because you're old. But uh, yeah, but uh, so basically, you got this girl. You got these guys that are wanting to date this girl. The, one of the astronaut goes to kiss the girl. Or they kiss, and he she's because she doesn't know any human contact. She's never had a boyfriend. It, it seems all she's known as a male figure in her life is her father. And uh, one of the guys like, well, you know, the humans, you know, we do it by close contact and touch. And and he kisses her, and he's like, well, did you feel anything? She's like, no, <laughs> you know, basically. And that's when the commander comes around the corner and sees him, and and he just rips into him. Uh, you know, he rips into her, saying, you know, what are you doing? I've got all these guys here. This is not safe for you to be here. Basically, you need to go back and stay with your father. Uh, but th- this is also the point where the cook <laughs> talks to Robbie the robot Cookie. because. Robbie, they was demonstrated at the lunch earlier that you could, uh, he could eat a banana, they stick a banana or whatever in this thing, and he could process it and make give you a banana back. So he can replicate things. It's yeah. like a replicator in Star Trek. The, yeah, the chemical like compound. He can he can reproduce uh, whatever item that he <laughs> ingests. Right. So the is. cook gives him a thing. I, I believe it was whiskey. And he drinks it, and he's like, no, what are you doing? He's like, well, how much do you want? He's like, uh, 60 gallons or something like that. You know what I mean? So he's like, all right, it might take me a minute, you know. So later on in the movie, you'll see where he goes around this corner to meet with Robbie. And there's like a pile of whiskey bottles on the ground. I mean, you know, the purest that you can get, according to that guy. He was all happy. You want me to do some stuff about Robbie here? Yeah, go for it. uh, kind of was the focus of my... Uh, note taking, I guess. Um, he appeared. Uh, well, there's a strong connection, obviously. Uh, Jimbo and I do the Twilight Zone uh, segment of this podcast, and there is that connection. Actually, Robbie made an appearance in a Twilight Zone episode called Uncle's. I think there was actually seven Twilight Zone. He made seven Twilight Zone appearances, but one in particular called Uncle Simon, and uh, we'll cover that in that segment of the podcast. But besides that, uh, besides this motion picture, uh, Robbie, the robot, um, he was in the invisible boy in 1957. He made an appearance on the Perry Como show. That's going way back. 1960, the Gale storm show, 1958. I have no idea. Those are really old, uh, shows that go way back before my time. I know who Perry Como is, but, and uh, he actually was uh, Lurch's replacement in the Adams Family in uh, the 1966 movie, or maybe that was just an episode of the Adams Family, Adams Family in 1966. Uh, he was in a dream sequence uh, in Hazel from 1962. Robbie made an appearance in two television episodes of Lost in Space, War of the Robots, and that's from 1966. And another episode called uh, Condemned of Space in 1967, which, by the way, the reboot, I'll just insert this here, the the reboot of The Lost in Space, Jimbo and I were talking about this off the air, uh, is actually pretty good, the reboot. I've never actually seen the original television show. But the Netflix one's pretty good. But the Netflix one, yeah, it's pretty good. My my kids and I enjoy that one uh, pretty well. Uh, On television, he was the, the thin man. Robbie appeared in the episode of Robot Gint. In 1957, and it go, and this is all from um, the book, uh, the Twilight Zone Unlocking a T- uh, Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And actually, Robert Kinoshita, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, 
he is credited for building Robbie the Robot, was also the art director for the TV series Lost in Space, 1965. And many of the Lost in Space robot features are similar to Robbie's glass head and uh, with animated elements. Um, robot, uh, Robbie the Robot resides in the private collection of director William Malone. Mm-hmm. I'm not really familiar with William Malone. Um, you know Bill. Yeah, I don't really know much about him, but apparently he is uh, in safekeeping uh, with him. And I think that's about all I had about Robbie the Robot. Uh, he is uh, very popular. Uh, got his origins here in Forbidden Planet and has made many television and movie debuts right. going forward. Well, I remember what happens now. Um, I think it's after the first smoosh by the crewman. Uh, that night, you remember the footprints in the same, or whatever that goes up, it goes up to the ship. Mm-hmm, and yeah. it destroys some piece of equipment on there, remember? Yeah. And that kills a crewman up yep. there. And there, and that's when the captain comes back, mm-hmm. like, who was on watch or whatever, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and it was the a, cook. like a casing of his foot, right? Right. Or a mold of his, right. of the sand. And the, and the, I don't know if it was then or if that's when it comes back after they put their fence up. But, uh, yeah, because they, they were like, who was on watch? And I think it was the cook, and I think he was out drunk or okay. whatever. He's like, captain, he's like, it was locked. Nobody came up here, you know? Sorry. Just one correction on that. Robbie the robot wasn't in seven Twilight Zones. The actual the spaceship, the C five seven D, the the flying saucer, actually was in seven episodes of the Twilight Zone. Robbie the robot was only in one episode. Right. When they didn't see anything on the perimeter of the energy fence that came in to kill somebody on the ship, you know, he's like, "Well, we're going to stand guard." And this is when. Um, this is when Adams goes and confronts Morbius and says, hey, what's going on here? Uh, the f- doctor finally gives Adams and Doc a tour of what lies behind the door, which he's in his study because they went to go look at him and say, hey, right. look, I've got dead crewmen. Right. Now, I don't believe this is before uh, the monster comes. Uh, when they have their fence ups and there's this big battle, this monster is, um, it looks pretty good for 19... 19- what was it, 56? Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, it, it looks like a... I appreciate uh, it for what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's well, well, he done. hits the fence and he lights up. It's just a big electric looking monster, if you will. And it, there's a an inside joke that said that, you know, when he first gets hit, he goes left and right. It's a play on the MGM uh, tiger, Leo the tiger, or okay. lion that, you know, that right. roars before. If you see that, he does that. So they go back and they confront the doctor. Uh, they tour a lot what's behind his door and he tells them, look, it's a, this is a the remains of a 200,000-year-old race gone called the Krell. So the Krell complex is huge. Um, it's got a bunch of nuclear reactors and machines and traces of the race. You know, the, it's it's like they technical like evolution, a, if you will. Yeah, they go like into a deep cave. Like the the little study has another Opens door. Up, and right. they just go deeper, deeper, and deeper into the the heart of the planet or whatever, kind of. Yeah, and, and I thought it was really cool where he shows them that... Uh, that I guess the machine where it tests your IQ. Yeah. And uh, he says, you know, I used this once. He said, it knocked me out for two days. Uh, But once he had came to, his IQ doubled, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And nobody can under, they don't know. He's like, well, let me see what mine is. And they put them on and they test them. That's real low. You know what I mean? It didn't knock them out or anything. So basically you come to find out that the monster's coming in to attack them at this laboratory or wherever the Krell or Morbius is. And you come to find out that, look, this whole monster, this whole scenario is a basically, I don't want to say a figment of imagination. It's imagination that came true. It's kind of like a poltergeist. They it's say like that subconscious, right? Right. They say that a poltergeist is basically something that you think about and it becomes reality. Okay. Um, so 
from Morbius's mind, by trying to protect his daughter and everything, he has set up this subconsciously to protect himself and and anybody that would try to come and invade their space. The monster and everything is his doing, and it's coming through the door, trying to get to these guys to kill him or whatever. And Morbius is like, no, I won't give it up. You know, it's, he's like, you have to. You know what I mean? But what no one figures out until it's too late is that the machinery allowed for the creation of physical objects just by thinking about them. Unfortunately, this also means that subconscious thoughts can also become corporal beings, and it's these monsters of the ID, which is what they called that monster, the, 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 yeah. the id, um, killed the original expedition and threatening the crew now. Um, basically, it's all Morbius' fault. Um, but what I didn't understand is I don't think Morbius had to die for it to stop. Okay, here's my question. Did he die on the deck there at the end or... Were they just taking his body? Yeah, or or was he just like refusing to... Because he set off the nuclear reactor. Well, right. he had uh, Adams set off the nuclear reactor. So did he... Did he die there on the floor? Or uh, obviously he was incinerated when they blew up the planet at the very end. Right. I, well, see, here's what I... Here's, I don't think they had to incinerate the planet because once he died, oh, his died subconscious with- died with him. So okay. I don't think there was any more threat to the planet. Okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and I have another question. I'm sure you can probably help me out with this because, like, the Krell, they were two... Uh, two thousand centuries they, uh, earlier, they you know they date back to two thousand centuries on that planet. So they basically wiped themselves out. Am I understanding that correctly? They wiped themselves out with their own subconscious poltergeist type deal. So they ended up, you know, they got to a certain stature in their society, and then they ended up wiping themselves out. Or did, was, did Morpheus wipe? See them out? that that I don't think I, that's ever that was, answered. That was unclear. Or did they get too far advanced that they ended up killing themselves? You know what I mean? Um, Their minds were so advanced that they ended up creating monsters of the mind. I don't think it answers that. Or did Morbius kill the Krell off once that crew once landed? they landed. Did they, did they Krell kill off the other people there? Or was it Morbius that killed off the other people with his subconsciousness? Yeah, there's, there's some... And was um, his wife there too? There was some I, I don't remember yeah, that. She, he claims that his wife died of natural causes when he's given, you know, the, at the initial lunch and they're talking... Uh, to Adams and the other crew members, he says that his wife died of natural. She was like one of the only people other than. But was he lying? Altera. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, I think so. It leads you to believe, like, nah, he wiped her out too. But and basically, this whole entire time, this plot's going on is the commander or captain is basically taking Altera as his own girlfriend. Somewhere along the way, she's like, he's like, I love you, or she's like, I love you, yeah, and he's like, I love you too. Out and and I thought that that was really weird too because it just kind of just happened like. Like, yeah, real there, fast. I didn't like that. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, context. Right. So that was just an overview of the movie. Now we'll dive into this more notes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you need to watch it because I, I can't explain it yeah. because there's so many ways this could go. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's a good watch if you watch it. I'm just, you got to appreciate it for <laughs> what it is. It's a little cheesy. I mean, but don't, don't, uh, me. Uh, Gene Roddenberry from Star Trek fame, the creator, is quoted saying that this film was a major inspiration for the whole Star Trek series. Okay, well, I can um, see that. And the guy, the guy who played Doc here, he's actually in the uh, Star Trek original series uh, episode by any other name. Um, the reaction from the preview audience was so positive that the movie was released as it was with no further changes. That is why there are several rapid takes toward the end. Which may explain why it was sped up a little bit at the end, because it went, the audience loved it so much that they didn't go back and do any editing or whatever. 
the model of the flying saucer-style Earth-shaped space cruiser retained by the MGM prop department and subsequently used in a number of productions of the MGM lot, including the Twilight Zone to serve man. And this, you talked about Robbie the Robot, his ground transporter and crew uniforms would uh, also be used on the Twilight Zone in 1959 as well. So they used the crew uniforms too. Okay. I'm trying um, to think which episode. Oh, here they are right here. It says right here. Okay. The spaceship C-570 models and full-size prop was actually used in seven episodes of the Twilight Zone. The lists are as follows by season. Uh, the Twilight Zone, third from the sun, yep. which we've covered. The monsters are due on Maple Street, which yep. we've already done. Uh, Hocus, or sorry, the Invaders. We haven't done that one. That's this is a horrible Star episode. Uh, uh, I don't that's want to do that one. I've seen it. It's terrible. Uh, to serve man uh, on Thursday, we leave for home, and then Robbie's vehicle does appear in the final scene of Twilight Zone: The Rip Van Winkle Caper. Okay. Uh, the crew's outfits were used in a number of episodes, not to mention also in the Time Machine in 1960 and the Queen of Outer Space in 1958, along with some of the props. Uh, the flickering force-filled fence post appeared in Atlantis, the Lost Continent, and were last seen being placed at the bottom of the ocean and around the world under the sea in 1966. And here's something that's very interesting me and Eric talked about off the air, was the miniskirt worn by Anne Francis was seen to be the first worn in a Hollywood movie and resulted in the film being banned in Spain. It was not shown there until 1967 due to General Franco's dictatorship that considered dirty and obscene that a woman wore miniskirt to show off her legs. Yeah. My, how the times have changed. They have changed. Wow, a lot. Um, that's interesting that it was rated G, but I think in Spain it was... Uh, something happened with the ratings I read somewhere where um, somehow it got accepted as is and that some people were viewing it and then they had to pull it, I think, because... It was supposed to be for adults only, and Uh, however their rating systems in Spain was in 1958 or whatever. Uh, This is loosely based on The Tempest by William Shakespeare, as Eric had once mentioned, as he was an accredited writer. Right. Uh, this movie's poster. This is a really cool movie poster, and it's top a really five cool, movie poster. I will give it its due. That's a pretty cool of the movie poster. twenty. It's number five on the top twenty-five best movie okay. posters ever by yeah. Premier Magazine, which which is crazy because Robbie never actually carries the girl. Thank you. And he I never like, picks her up. Right. I was like, this is mind blowing. He picks up the doctor at the end to carry him out. Right. But, but never her. Never her. Which is sold the poster. I'm sure. Um. Production took up 89,000 square feet of soundstage space, making one of the largest productions for MGM. Uh, while plenty of previous science fiction films had Earthlings explore other worlds, this was the first film to be set entirely on a foreign planet. While there are plenty of outdoor sequences in the film, all of them were shot indoors on a studio soundstage, while many exterior landscape shots are compromised of colorful and detailed matte paintings. Um the planet on which Edward and Altair and Morbius live is Altor 4, which, according to Star Trek Deep Space Nine, is a Federation planet. Uh, here you go. The sound of the ID, or id, if you will, uh, <laughs> monster's footfalls were used in the last scene of Breaking Bad, the crawl space, in 2011. Okay. Never seen it, so I can't, can't comment I've on that. I've seen Breaking Bad. I'm trying to think of what episode that was. It's hmm. the last, I don't know. Uh, in November 2017, the Robbie Robot costume and his transport set an auction record for a non-automotive screen prop when they sold for $5.375 million, surpassing the $4 million paid for the Maltese Falcon in 1941, the statuette, hmm. in 2013. Uh, Robbie the Robot was originally operated by stuntman actor Frankie Darrow. He was fired during filming after almost falling over while in the expensive prop following a five-martini lunch. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's a good lunch. <laughs> At a cost of roughly $125,000, Robbie the Robot was expensive for a single film prop used at this time. 
Anne Francis was never on set at the same time as the tiger. If you look carefully at 2704 minutes into the film, you can see the vertical dividing line where two separate shots, one of Altera and one of the tiger, are spliced together into one shot. This splice is moved several times as Francis walks across the frame and the tiger walks out of yeah. frame. We Go talk ahead, about Eric. That. We talked about, about that off-air, off that you could definitely tell a, uh, the difference, in the difference color, there yeah. in the uh, continuity of the, the film and the colors and everything kind of shift a little bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, in the official trailer, Dr. Morbius' daughter is introduced as Olga, not Altera. So I thought that was really crazy. <laughs> uh, here you are. The Barons finally released their soundtrack in 1976 as an LP album for the film's 20th anniversary. It was on their very own Planet Records label, later changed to Small Planet Records and distributed by GMP uh, Crescendo Records. Uh, the trailer was narrated by Marvin Miller, who also provided the voice for Robbie the Robot. Okay. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, in the early 90s, a remake was announced several times with Irvin Kirshner of Star Wars Episode uh, Five: The Empire Strikes Back, directing and Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Morbius, Ooh. but the financing kept falling through. I think that would have been great, too. See, they, they do so many remakes. Why wouldn't they remake this one, especially as long as it's been like that? Well, I think they are remaking it. Okay. Well, I, I think I read something where they're trying to remake it again, but I think it would be, if they did it right, this could be a really good movie. Really yeah. good movie. I'm telling you. This was a good movie in general. I know you don't think so, but I think I think Leslie Nelson knocked it out of the park. I mean, well, he was acting, over the top. Was over good. the top. Yeah, yeah. That was good. I wouldn't uh, the, take the that ending was a little just rushed, I think. Yeah. It didn't really explain it a lot. It left you know? a lot of loose ends. Yeah. In preparing for this film, the MGM borrowed a print of This Island Earth in 1955 from Universal Pictures. Uh, the C five seven or C five seven D was also used in episodes of the Twilight Zone, which we've talked about. Yep. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, March 11, 1955 Hollywood Reporter news item stated that Steve Forrest and John Erickson were suspended from MGM after turning down roles in this film. They got suspended for turning down roles. I think this goes back to when they were leased. Yeah. You know the, what I mean? Uh, the contract contracted yeah. actors. MGM so. owned the actors, and they basically could dictate what they were going to play in and whatnot. Right. This now, how about this? This is sad. Since uh, uh, Bebe or BB Baron and Louis uh, Baron did not belong to the Musicians Union, their work could not be considered for an Academy Award in either the soundtrack or the sound effects categories, just because they didn't belong to the Musicians Union. They wouldn't have won anything. I anyway. don't know, man. Back then, it might have. Uh, this is the only sound film produced without any musical score or theme music, only the electronic tonalities. MGM restricted access to the sets during construction and production to prevent public exposure to the new innovations to be unveiled in the film. So they were protecting their protecting their stuff. According to the follow-up movie, The Invisible Boy, 1957, so there's another movie called The Invisible Boy, Eric. I want you to do a deep dive research on that one. The C-57D spacecraft returned to Earth on March 26, 2309 AD at Chicago Spaceport. Um... With the death of James Drury, crewman strong on April 6, 2020, Earl Holloman Cookie is the last surviving member of the cast. Oh, Cookie, and he drinks all the whiskey, and he's the last <laughs> man standing. This is obviously uh, one of the 1,001 movies you might see before you die, according to Steven Schneider. Uh, this is cool. Most of the uh, characters are called by their titles throughout the movie, except for Altera, who has no title. Curiously, when the id monster attacks the home, Robbie alerts Morbius without the title of Doctor. Okay. It's pretty cool. Right? They have a close relationship to where you can just call him Morbius. Not <laughs> well, first Morbius. Name. Just call me Robbie. Just call me Robbie, not Robbie the Robot. 
Uh, when the commander is shooting his blaster at the wall, the pattern is especially similar to the beat of jingle bells. <laughs> I never noticed that. <laughs> and Francis commented in 1976, the most exotic outfit Helen Rose designed for me was for Forbidden Planet. And it was never seen in the film. Mr. Dor Sher- Sherry nixed it as being too revealing. It was an all-in-one form-fitting jumpsuit of silver lame. It was long-sleeved and covered me from head to toe with silver cuff gloves to match. It also had a skull-fitted lame hood, similar to the hoods worn by the knights of old. Over this was to be worn a seen-through coat that was knee-length and belted at the waist. Specially made see-through shoes were to adorn my silver feet. It was sexy for sure, but I wonder... Or, and I wonder what Mr. Shari thinks of today's form-fitting nudity. Yeah, really. <laughs> he may, he'd probably be rolling over in his grave. According to various sources, when the crew members are firing on the monster and it roars... Oh, I talked about the NGM uh, lion. The body count in this movie, seven. The tiger, five members of the crew, and it's Morbius. We forgot to talk about that one. Uh, the captain's there, and, and the tiger jumps down. He shoots him from just disintegrates it. She yeah, like, just killed her tiger, and like, no big deal. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to do that. Sorry, yeah. Just had to do it. I was like, that was her only friend on the planet. Well, not only that, but it's like, he makes her watch the incineration of the planet. Oh, sorry, your dad died. Yeah, your dad. <laughs> he showed no mercy, man. Um, Altera Morbius spends the majority of the movie barefoot. She only wears shoes when visiting the side of the C-57D landing and at the end when she prepares to leave Altair 4. Here you go. Robbie the robot was not able to really carry the doctor up after he was injured. If you look carefully, you can see the wires holding the doctor up. Of course you can with all those old movies. Um, the real tragedy in this story is that Commander Adams didn't have to destroy Altair 4. When Dr. Morbius died... His ID or id monster disappeared, which is possibly why Dr. Ostro's uh, id monster never appeared. It had become clear to Commander Adamson at this point the only persons augmented by the IQ machine generated their own ID monster uh, or id monster. Altera may have suspected this sooner. He could have simply guarded the IQ machine from us. Okay. So, we could have stopped it, I guess. And we talked about that, that uh, the original poster from the film shows Robbie carrying the female Altera. The Raptor on cover of the 50 under two special edition features Robbie carrying a green uniform male figure, Doc Ostrol, when he dies after disclosing his discovery of the id monster. Mr. Cummings, you got anything else to add? Not too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, again, we, we talked off the air, and I'll just reiterate that I appreciate it for what it was at its time and place, and they did some remarkable things, but... The story dragged for me in some parts, and um, some of the the comedy that was sprinkled in was a little kooky. Um, kooky, I, yeah, it was a little <laughs> cookie, or old, old cookie, and making the the whiskey and all that. And then when he gets strung up with the magnet, you remember that part <laughs> yeah. where he puts the, the metal shavings around his waist, right. and then. Uh, is it Adamson? I I'm think so. They, they just, just pronouncing and they he, watch this. Uh, yeah, he turns the magnet on, and the guy gets you know sucked to the mag. It, it it's it's okay, and I do agree with the end. The ending was rushed. It felt like um, there again. Just I've said this already, but there was a lot of loose ends. That it, a lot of things were open to interpretation. I didn't think the acting was bad. Uh, and technologically, these were a lot of breakthroughs and some firsts. And to 
to put that in perspective of what you just talked about earlier, that this was only, what, 17 years from the making of The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. and how far that they had come in special effects and all of the things that were like groundbreaking for this movie. I respect it for that. And it was nominated for an Oscar, so tip of the cap for that. But for me, I told you before that I, I got about halfway through and I fell asleep. So it's, <laughs> it's not, not one of my, my favorites. Well, you know th- you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of, especially for here, you remember Sammy Terry, late night TV shows, mm-hmm. always showing the classic horror movies. It'd be like more like Elvira or Svengoolie or any other local television uh, person that would do your Saturday night, Friday night, Saturday night, m- midnight movie monsters. Um, that's what it brought me back to from my childhood watching. I used to stay up and watch the Godzilla's and all those that would come on there. Um, I liked it. I like sci-fi movies in general. Um, and especially movies I've never seen before that are so talked about, um, because I think this is like number 18 on the top 100 sci-fi movies of all time. If you haven't seen it and you're a sci-fi person, you definitely need to check it out just to appreciate it. And not only that, but since we do the Twilight Zone series, there are many connections. There are a lot of props and stuff that you see in this that will, it just makes us, when we watch Twilight Zone, it stands out all that much more because if you ever listen to us talk about it on the Twilight Zone, we're always like, "Hey, this prop is using for it. Hey, this prop is using for it." We were obligated said, to watch. That's why I said, it has "I said, Eric, you have to watch this because all the references that is in the Twilight Zone, you will see the different control panels, the props, you know, and and it was cool seeing all that stuff there too, and how they reused a lot of those props instead of just replacing with new ones." Robbie so, and the uh, flying saucer, they got their money's worth. <laughs> yes, they did. And, and that control panel, man. Yeah. They, they, they used a lot of that stuff from that spaceship, I'm telling you, and the sounds and all that, because it still went, I mean, even went to Star Trek and all that, so it's been used for years. But, yeah, I say definitely check it out at least once. I mean, let us know what you think. I, th- I thought it was it was well done. And if you want to see Leslie Nielsen in a serious role and not mm. the slapstick comedy, because I, I had no idea. You know mm. what I mean? So... Well, there you have it. That's uh, our episode for today. Thanks, Eric, for coming in and filling in for Terrence. Uh, Hopefully, Terrence makes it back soon. Um, We'll we'll be doing Jurassic Park. If not, I'll just keep throwing some other movies around to have special guests come in and cover until Terrence can make it back. But I think this episode's coming to a close. And, Eric, take it away. And cut. (laughs) 